You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Sarah Ladipomanika, writer, founding editor of Aussie Books, and longtime lecturer at San Francisco State. Please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Daniel Handler. Daniel is best known for his children's series, A Series of Unfortunate Events, under the, na- under the name, glad to hear you've heard of it, under the name Lemony Snicket. However, he's also authored novels under his own name. His books have sold over 70 million copies worldwide. And to, I'm just kind of waiting. It's That's like an applause moment. But we'll finish no. tonight. Tonight. No, it's a moment of, of astonishment <laughs> and disbelief, I think. Tonight, really? tonight, yeah. Daniel will listen to me. Tonight, we're celebrating his new novel, Bottle Grove, a dark comedy set in San Francisco as the tech community looms over the city. Daniel, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Hello. So I just had a very quick one-line description of your novel, but I'd like to say a little bit more, which is the way that I read it at its core, it's a story about two marriages. One, a marriage of love, another, a marriage that involves money, and there's a little bit of a con game going on. Yeah. And these two marriages intersect in clever and surprising ways. And these, the story is set with the backdrop of San Francisco, ever-changing San Francisco, in which technology is a big element. There are several characters, one of which is the city of San Francisco. And you write this novel with your characteristic flair, with great humor and great insight into human nature. So that's a longer Thank you. Yeah, it was full of flattery, which I enjoy. I think it's quite apt. Thank you. And I thought we would begin by me asking you about the inspiration for this story. Um, well, I was there were several strands of inspiration, I guess, but and they're all they all felt San Franciscan to me. Um, one was when um, our no longer mayor, but then Mayor Gavin Newsom, was marrying uh, same-sex couples. And we were in the middle of um, a conversation that now seems kind of quaint. That was about the definition of marriage. And I thought that was a really um, fascinating thing because I hadn't thought about it being a definition of marriage. I thought it was a civil rights issue as being denied to some people who clearly should have it. We had some friends fly to San Francisco and crash on our floor in order to stand in line for a long time and do it. Uh, My wife and I volunteered in the line um, down there, and um, there didn't seem to be any dispute going on about the definition of marriage. Everyone was pretty agreed on it. Um, my son was a tiny little baby, and he was strapped to me. And um, I remember that I was, the assumption was, was that I was in a same-sex couple, and so I was being asked a lot of questions about um, kind of how we got the baby and what we were doing with the baby now. And all my answers were the most boring, you know, we made the baby in the most boring way possible. If you don't know how that is, you can look it up later. But, um, and so, 
And it, and it struck me that what was utterly ordinary in my usual context in which everyone knew that I was married to a woman and everyone knew that we had this biological child was something that everyone in line was kind of grappling with. And, um, and then I was at the age that you get when the first people you know are getting divorced, the first people of your peers. And um, in many ways, you don't learn about anyone's marriage until that happens, right? Because people begin to tell you stories and you can't believe that somebody put up with something for so long or you can't believe that somebody's so upset about something that you would take for years or um, you just learn all these things. And to have that going on at the same time when there was a conversation about the definition of marriage was really interesting to me. And I began to think about what was the definition of marriage and that we talk about it like it's all the same thing. Um, but we're all doing it with different people. Hopefully, we're all doing it with different people. And so um, that was uh, swirling around in my mind. And as it goes, when I write a book, I wander around uh, my hometown of San Francisco with things swirling around in my mind. And I was wandering around my neighborhood, and I saw a fox, which I uh, had never seen before um, in my neighborhood. And now I see it all the time foxes and coyotes um, being driven into my um, residential neighborhood. I don't live in the boondocks um, by new construction. And um, coyotes are very, if you see a coyote on the street, well, you kind of live in the same neighborhood as I do. Do you see a coyote every so often? Once. Yeah. But yes. And it's unmistakable. Yes. And it is, um, it's like a hell's angel is what it feels like to me. A coyote, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? And you're like, I'm just actually just leaving. Um, whereas the fox is very friendly in the way that a fox is. A fox is like, oh, you're going in your house? Maybe I should go in your house. What do you think? Um, and so I started reading about foxes um, and I, and somehow all of this began to kind of coalesce in my head that um, the idea of there being kind of wild places and wild animals in San Francisco and maybe kind of wild and untamed aspects of ourselves and then how that gets pushed around and codified. Um, and just something that I think is interesting about foxes is that um, the folklore about them is kind of universal, which is really interesting. If you read different parts of the world's take on different animals and folktales, everybody has a different personality to it, but not the fox. The fox is a kind of amoral, slippery, sneaky master of disguise wherever you go. Mm -hmm. Among cultures who never met, they made up the same story. It was like the foxes were talking, even as the cultures weren't. So that was interesting to me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There are various elements Sorry. there. Yeah. Um, that was a long answer. No, it's I. I. I was in London yesterday, and I was thinking a lot about foxes because yeah. anyone who lives in London will know that. Well, I think this is true that the number of foxes have increased dramatically, and right. I went for an early morning walk and saw these foxes. And it's it's interesting, even as you're talking thinking there's um, a writer, British writer, Aminata Fauna, and her latest book, Happiness, begins with yeah. fox, as fox wandering through the city. Um, so this is all to come back to the city of San Francisco and talking about changes that have happened, and you've just, that's one element of change. Um, so I want to 
wrap those various threads of inspiration together and talk to you about San Francisco as a city, which inspires you. I have lived here for many years, but not as long. I, I didn't grow up here, which I believe you grew up in San Francisco. I did. I was born and raised here. And um, I lived in um, the city of New York. Maybe you've heard of that for a couple of years. But uh, just about thoroughly, I've lived here. And now I'm not going anywhere, clearly. Um, and so if you live someplace for a long time, you have a strange perspective on what change is. Um, because it's kind of happening all the time. And if I'm in the right mood, every square block of San Francisco has some point of nostalgia for me about something that isn't there anymore. And let's all think about it for a while. Um, but then also San Francisco as having bona fide change that feels more dramatic than something that just happens in a secular way. And I think um, you can't really wander the city without seeing all this change and wondering how much you can change and still have it be the same thing. Which for me felt also like marriage. You spend a lot of time with someone and you're changing and they're changing. And are you still the same kind of married couple? I've been married for 117 years. And um, I bought my wife her first legal drink, for instance. Um, and now we're older than that. And <laughs> we've both changed and uh, we're both married uh, to each other. And the idea of what is constant, what you can point out that is constant, what counts is constant, and what, when everything is changing, is interesting to me. We'll come to marriage in a little moment, but I still want to Sooner dwell on. Do. I want to dwell on this. Well, we'll come to marriage immediately then, and I'll okay. say that one of the most amazing people I have interviewed has been your wife. So she's no pressure, utterly amazing. But you know, yeah. hoping that your interview will stand up to. I will. Her. It will definitely not be so, as good yes. as talking to my wife. <laughs> I should know. I talk to myself all the time, and I talk to my wife all the time, and it's way better when I talk to my wife. <laughs> Okay. Well, you're talking to your wife's friend at the moment. Yeah. So, change, San Francisco. Um, one of the things that's just wonderful about your novel is how you make reference throughout the novel to the various aspects of change. And tech, the impact of technology and tech companies is very much there. And I wondered, as someone who has been, has born, was born here and has grown up here, what, if you can speak a little bit more about the changes that you've noticed, other in, in addition to the appearance of foxes and coyotes, um, but also perhaps dwell on for a moment on the impact of technology companies and is this an irreversible change? And just yeah, or or not? Well, what's what stands out to me most and what is in the novel is. Um, the kind of cult of personality that surrounds some of the heads of the technology companies. Because even though I am in some ways behind the time, I'm a relatively new owner of a cell phone, for instance. But um, I, I, you know, I love the same technology everybody has. I'm totally used to looking up stuff all the time. And now that I have this machine, I can get a ride home everywhere, which, you know, for most of my life was a big deal 
who's going to drive? Who are we going to pick up? We're all going to meet there. We're all going to park. Now, now no one has that conversation anymore. The same way you don't give directions anymore, right? All that technology has been absorbed very easily. Um, so it doesn't seem, and the technology and the economics of technology working in San Francisco, there are people who are certainly doing far more work and research and uh, have far more knowledge and wisdom about it. Um, but what really strikes me is this pack of uh, men, and it is almost without exception men, um, who have what seems to me not a new idea, um, and it, that their idea is treated not only as new but visionary, and that what seems to attach its value is that they've had success, and that the success often also seems kind of imaginary and that they've made something that everybody everybody's heard of, but you read, oh, they've lost you know three hundred and eighty billion dollars this month, and that uh, I, I I'm the son of an accountant, and uh, <laughs> when I grew up, that was not considered success, because um, I was I tried to make it for a writer as a long time, and I was not considered successful when I lost money every month, um, and so and that's it's just interesting to me that someone says, hey, I thought of this thing where you get food delivered to your house. And I think like, I, but I, I don't think that's new. Or, you know, or like, hey, everybody ever listen to the radio? I got it. It's like, uh, you're going to listen to music. It's going to be great. You're going to get a ride in someone else's car. You know, you're going to sleep in someone else's apartment. You ever done that before? I invented it. And um, <laughs> I find that startling and fascinating. And I think that um, it's maybe more startling to someone like me, because I um, am involved in a cult of literature um, in which what looms large in my head and the ideas that are important to me are not necessarily popular, and that um, everyone kind of agrees in the arts that what is maybe influential and exciting is not necessarily the big thing that everybody's doing right this week, right? That's, it's more than understood. So that um, if, if some book is really high on the bestseller list and it's been there forever, you know that it's, that is not necessarily the most exciting book that anyone will consider in a period of time or anything like that. That's kind of the shape of how literature is. And so when somebody says, this is a really great idea, and you say, it seems like an idea I've heard before. And they say, yeah, but it's like he's, he, oh my God, he made so much money. I mean, not real money because, he, because the company is going under, but he bought this house. And then you begin to think, is that really an exciting idea? Or is it more like what a fox might tell you? It's an exciting idea. And, and that feels um, like a big change in San Francisco to me, that there's so many of these people, and they're, um, and they're taken so very seriously um, for reasons that are not always clear to me. OK. Let's go back to marriage. OK. <clears throat> One of the things that you were saying when we were having a conversation earlier um, in the green room about marriage was, and I hope I'm getting you right in saying this, that this is a topic that you wouldn't have chosen to focus on or write about in children's books, um, but it's something that you, you know, for grown-up books, it's more of an appropriate topic. Yeah, I mean, I've written so many children's books that I think I'm drawn often in my works for adults to things that aren't in children's books because it's kind of what's left. And certainly marriage is not something that I think um, is of interest to children. Okay. Uh, I mean, rightfully so. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but I mean, I think part of thinking about 
marriages thinking about how you change a long time over time. And if you're a child, you don't really have a grasp of that. And also your kind of your knowledge of marriage, which is probably based on your parents or other people closer to you, whether it is a successful one or an unsuccessful one is, um, is, you know, it's kind of a game you put you, Oh, let's live in a house together. Um, and so I don't, yeah, I don't think I can't imagine a children's book about marriage. So even though your first book in the series of unfortunate events does have a marriage, but yeah, I mean, Count Olaf tries to marry Violet Baudelaire in order to steal her fortune, but I'm not sure most people would consider that a novel about marriage or a model to follow. (laughs) If you're considering marriage, don't marry a little girl for her fortune. So as you were writing this novel, and I know as a writer that you, and will read a lot around topics that you're writing on. Were there particular books that you read that handled the topic of marriage that you thought were great, that were an inspiration to you as you were writing or? Yeah, yeah. there were some, I mean, um, the Evan S. Connell uh, has these two novels, Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge often put in a box together as Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Um, that are, you get um, kind of two sides of a marriage that hardly fit together at all. Um, that was appealing to me. Um, our own uh, Andrew Sean Greer, who is a pal of mine, but he wrote a novel called The Story of a Marriage that I really liked and admired. Um, who else? I think Alice Monroe writes very beautifully about um, how you can spend your whole life with your favorite person in the world and how often you would like to throw them out of a window. Um, so those were the, I think the big ones for me. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. And then also, uh, it was, people told me a lot of stories about their marriage. You're a writer. So I bet the same thing happens to you, which is that despite being the last person anyone should tell their secrets, people just do. So do you warn people, beware? I've given up warning them. What is, how many, I mean, what do I have to say? Yeah. (laughs) Your story may end up in one of my... What's like if you meet a DJ, how often do you have to say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be work late? Um, (laughs) I'm a writer. If you tell me something, it's going to, you know, I'm going to think about it and maybe write it down. And so um, people, I've learned things about people's marriages and I found those things fascinating. And then you, you know, you try to, you're supposed to keep them secret. And so the best thing to do is put them in a novel and kind of move them around a little bit. So then certain people can be mad at you, but they can't really say that you've revealed their secret because they have no idea. Daniel, I want to ask you about humor. (laughs) You're very funny. Uh, Thank you. In person and on the page. And it's not easy to write humor. So I want to know what the secret is to writing humor. But also there are... Be raised Jewish. I would say this is a, this is a tremendous advantage. Okay. So that, okay. Be raised Jewish. Yeah. There also might be a little late for you for that, but I think so. Uh, <laughs> there are also perils when it comes to writing humor though, because yeah. some things can be misunderstood. Can't imagine misconstrued. what misconstrued. So this is a serious question, Daniel. Yeah, no, I'm listening. So very serious. So, but. so as a writer, does this the, does the weight of humor and writing humor in a way that might not be misunderstood or misconstrued does that weigh on you at all as a writer? I think 
what weighs on me is not being funny. I think that when I write for a long time as seriously as I can, um, I begin to get itchy for it. And I mean, it sounded like a joke to say being raised Jewish, but I mean, I was raised in an extended family um, that ha was decimated. I was close to various cousins who were not close to me on the family tree because so many of us were gone um, because of unspeakable things happening. And the way that that was talked about was with laughter. And that um, I think that humor is a way of looking askance at the world, right? It is a way of saying, we hold this to be true, or this is something that is happening. If we take it to a ridiculous conclusion, we see that maybe it's not true after all. And what are we talking about after all? And I think that that's just always interesting to me. And um, I don't know how I could write something humorless. And whenever I try, then I get itchy, and then it gets, and then it gets funny. I hope. On that serious note, would you read to us? Yes, I will. <laughs> <laughs> that felt so plaintive, like I'm going to tuck you all in. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit from the beginning of the book, so I don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Dearly beloved, the vicar is practicing his ceremony. His name is Renard, tall and bent thin like a straw in a drink, wearing a borderline sloppy linen suit and a hat for the sun across his ageless face and is not a vicar. Lil, the woman in charge, can usually smell this kind of thing on people, but she is bent over the tray of enchiladas, her elaborate and expensive necklace nearly trailing in the sauce. All the food for the wedding is Mexican, although the bride and groom are not Mexican at all, and everything looks delicious. There is a bowl of pinto beans with a careful spiral of sour cream in the middle, for instance, and cilantro scattered on top in a real pattern. The food isn't what, re uh, what Lil is worried about. If this is a story about two marriages, then one of them begins here. The bride is Rachel, who is marrying a man named Ben Nichols, very kind and not skinny. Rachel Nichols might not be a new, an ideal new name, a little garbly with the half rhyme, but her maiden name is worse. The wedding is at Bottle Grove, a small forest in San Francisco donated by a wealthy patron for the public good before you were born, back when people did such things. There are such patches all over the city, preserved green forever on maps, Wood Hill, Tank Grove, Kite Lake, Stern Forest. This neighborhood is woodsy, and these are the woods right where an ugly wide avenue meets a sleepier boulevard at a corner governed by the forbidding but harmless stare of an old Masonic temple. You might miss the snaky sneak away, a paved road that winds down to an outdoor amphitheater, terrifying at night, where summer concerts go on. Away from that is a field and a small clubhouse where you can get married. One might think Bottle Grove is named for its shape on the map, or perhaps a nickname that became official over time as more and more drinkers left glass souvenirs on stumps and boulders. Wrong. There is actually a Bottle family still hanging on in the city, and in fact Lil is one of them, still using her honorary seat on the board of directors that surveils the Grove so she can peep around at all the clubhouse functions, ensuring the park's integrity with her nosiness. She is maybe 60, her hair done very strictly, and her eyes pendulum the reception room and the wide porch. 
She married into the Bottles, a refugee from another old family out of money, and now the Bottle money is pretty much gone too, buried in real estate too precious to sell. Everything is getting set up. Thanks. So there's a thread that runs through this book, which is things are not as they seem. Yeah. Um, I, I, an, another part of the inspiration, I guess, is that um, I, I'm just gauging if I can tell the story, and I'm deciding I can. Um, that when I lived in New York, we crazily, we were broke, my wife and me, but we had not a large apartment or a nice apartment, but an apartment with a large room about the size of this room, actually, and which is crazy in New York, but not pretty or anything, but big. And, um, and so someone asked if they could have their, our, their wedding party in our house. I mean, someone I knew. And we said, sure. And it was a wedding uh, that, uh, between two people that we could not believe were getting married and, in fact, didn't stay married for very long. And the party... Um, was we were pretty young and we were in a large room with no money in Manhattan and um, everyone was concerned about the couple so the uh, alcoholic beverages were consumed uh, heavily and the uh, man who had married the couple, the vicar um, was uh, drinking uh, with um, particular delight and he found a, um, another man at the party, and they uh, left my apartment to go have an assignation in the stairwell. I feel we need a definition of assignation. Um, well, I wasn't there, <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly, but it was sexual in nature. Right. It was not an international assignation. They, weren't, they didn't plot the defeat of a dictator. <laughs> they did something else. Um, and the other man, they both returned to the party, but the other man, uh, went and found his friend and he said, you will not believe what just happened. I just had this assignation. I'm sure that's not what he said with the vicar and standing with his friend was the vicar's wife. Yeah. I had no idea this was happening. I didn't learn about it till later, but I liked, but it was such, so sneaky and, um, you, you know, a horrible story about a marriage, but a delightful one if you're not involved or heartbroken or jealous or at all a participant in that story. Um, and I liked that underneath the surface of people having festivities was something unstable because that's already kind of what it was. We were all worried about the couple. This is very surreal because you do know I'm a vicar's daughter. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> right. All right. It was not your father, if no. that helps you. <laughs> Definitely not your father. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Mo moving right what along. What if it had been, though, and oh, I'd say that story? Daniel, Daniel, That would be a night at the Commonwealth Club we would never forget. And if I was able to, if the punchline was, that was your father. Now the punchline seems so disappointing in comparison to what it could have been, but it wasn't your father. I'm almost positive. <laughs> Daniel, yes. one of the things, <laughs> many things that I admire about you as a writer is the way that you are inspired by various art forms. I always find that interesting. Thank you. And um, you actually speak to that in your author's note. Um, 
you make reference to poetry and films and a pop album that have uh, found their way in some shape or form into your novel, or at least served as some inspiration. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's a pop album from which the novel gets its secret structure. So I'm, it's a secret structure. So I'm assuming you're not going to tell us about this a secret. pop album. But the other thing that I will say, which may be a secret, but it's not going to be a secret now because I will out you. You are an amazing singer. You have a wonderful voice. So even if it's secret, can you it's maybe so secret, sing? Even I don't know about could, it. Could you hum or sing a tiny bit of this album so we know what you're referring to? Can I hum a little bit of it? Yeah, or sing. I'll, I'll hum how the album begins. Hmm. That's how it begins. I was drawn, I was trying to figure out how to make this book and I wanted it to move very quickly um, because so many things are happening in it and it's about change and there's a fox fooling people and people are making horrible decisions under the influence of alcohol. So it all goes very quickly. Um, and I began to think about that I wanted to, it to move more like a pop album than like a, a novel. And, I, and so I thought of various pop albums that I like that seem to move very quickly. And I chose one and I listened to it a lot. And so that's the um, secret structure of it. And then I, every, then I, kind of, I just kind of took it as inspiration. I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting about pop music is that it's recorded very quickly. You know, people have an idea and they go in and they record it. And, um, and every little thing that they did just offhand maybe is then kind of immortalized in this thing, right? Every little tick of guitar on a Beatles song, they just kind of did. And then there it is forever. You're thinking about it. And that, um, and I liked that. So, um, and I, and I think that particularly music, I think is so omnipresent in our society, Right, but even if you're not interested in pop music, you kind of hear what the pop songs are because you are wandering around in the first world, and there is music popped everywhere into you. And I've lost track of the number of times that I don't think I've heard a song when I say, "Oh, I read some article," because that's how old I am. Right? I read an article in the New York Times that's talking about a pop song, and I say, "I haven't heard that," and then I listen to it, and I think, "Oh, I've heard it seventy thousand times," and I don't think I have because it's been piped into my ears, and so I don't know how that couldn't inspire you and i think particularly the incisive quickness of pop music you can't sometimes even if you don't like it you kind of love it you're listening to a podcast of inforum an innovation lab at the commonwealth club support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in san francisco at inforumsf.org it's interesting as you're talking about the quickness of you know the way things are thrown together with pop music there's is there an analogy perhaps with tech ideas or and right for yeah. sure yeah and how everybody you know everybody wants them right like how quickly we went from oh what a marvelous invention or like why isn't it here yet right or like if you go anywhere where something isn't available that you're used to being available it seems like an outrage okay so you're not going to tell us the album all right well we just have to guess on that single note but <laughs> it was a pretty good imitation <laughs> okay um, I like that you think I have a beautiful singing voice. You, I think that says something do. about you. You do. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I had a beautiful no. soprano voice. I was in the San Francisco Boys Chorus, and um, I and my parents considered they like to say castration in order to sustain my career. 
but they didn't. But I spent many, many, I had a very intense classical music upbringing through the San Francisco Boys Chorus and was often costumed as an urchin on stage at the San Francisco Opera. And um, I actually think the melodrama of opera has had an enormous effect on me. I think I couldn't have written the Lemony Snicket books without the kind of outsized craziness that opera is. Um, and my parents really liked the opera. Um, and my mother would take, my parents would take me to the, to a free opera when I was in the park or something, uh, when I was little and they would act out the plot of the opera with Fisher Price characters, Fisher Price dolls before we went so that I might follow something of the plot. So you've just talked about, you know, different forms, opera, film yeah. and so forth. You also turn your hand to different genres. So you have children's books, yep. adult books, essays. You've worked on the film adaptation of some of your books. What's, yeah. what, so what's that like, moving in, in, an, in between these various genres? Um, what is it like? It's fun to move around and do something. Um, you're being handed something. This just in. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. I mean, for the Netflix show, for instance, um, for two of the seasons, I had the writer's room in my dining room. And so we had a handful of writers um, sitting around my table and, um, you know, kind of bulletin board and, and things where we were taping up ideas and moving things around. And that was the opposite of how I normally work, which is by myself. And it was kind of exhausting because of other people, as we know, who are irritating. Um, <laughs> I mean, all the writers were lovely, but I was just, it was a lot of time to spend with other you people. You were irritating. Yeah, I was irritating. Um, and, uh, but, but I liked, it was fun. It was a fun um, challenge to do that. And, um, and then also to, I mean, I, I, it's somewhat of a long story, but the first season they hired a bunch of professional television writers who had written for television for a long time and it didn't work at all. And so then I got to hire this little group and um, I hired them through sign of a, a secret um, network of playwrights. And, um, and it was really fun to learn from them. I think if you are around people who are doing something well, you learn something, even if it isn't what you are doing. You know, I think being around um, excellence kind of can always be inspiring. And so... Playwrights are used to writing stuff that doesn't work over and over again. They're not precious about it. You know, they'll just say, let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. Let's try it this way. And that was really fun. It loosened me up a little bit. So you know, another thing that you've done on the, on the serious side is uh, writing. You've written pieces about Nobel laureates uh, in yeah. literature. I had a long column for a while where I read one book by each Nobel Prize winning author because um, I was curious about what that was like. And I was curious that the Nobel Prize is kind of generally concerned to be the pinnacle um, of literary achievement. And it, they are not what, it's not the list of the world's most popular authors at all. Mm -hmm. um, and that's interesting to me too, that they are so much at the pinnacle and then often not very much longer, almost impossible to find in English anyway, or and sometimes in any language. Um, and... So it was, it was kind of a, around the world in 80 days of looking at literature. And um, that was super fascinating to me. But one of the exceptions to what you've just described as Nobel laureates maybe not being as well read 
is Toni Morrison, who is yes. American, and she's just died recently. Yeah. And we're uh, both but you have Toni Morrison. We're both fans. Yeah, um, but you didn't write about her. So I didn't write about her. Um, I um, the part of the gambit was that I, if there was an author that I knew, I had to read something that I'd never read by them. And I have read everything by Toni Morrison. Um, and so, and then I couldn't decide if I found something hopelessly obscure, you know, some article or something that she had written that I hadn't read that didn't seem fair to have her represented by something that wasn't that way. Um, but she's just a Titan. And in fact, thinking about the way that, uh, that some Nobel prize, so many Nobel prize winning authors, um, vanish makes me hold on to the ones who are within my lifetime as so dear. And, um, and I mean, I know you and I can sometimes go off about Toni Morrison and the rest of the people at the dinner party are hoping we'll change the subject. So I'm trying to trim it a little bit. But I just think because we've lost her recently that it just feels important for me to say that I think despite win winning every prize, including the one we consider as the pinnacle, she is in my head kind of still underpraised because she is so powerful to read, but also so delicious to read. And oftentimes when an author is awarded so many prizes, they begin to feel so important that they must be boring. You know, you have this sense that, oh, I better, I guess I better, you know, kind of tighten my belt and get through this. And she is so excessively readable. And, um, and I just think, I mean, I'm not going to get the order right because now I'm just going off on Toni Morrison. But there's the first novel, The Bluest Eye, and then there's a run of novels. Help me if I don't do it right. Um, Sula, Tar Baby, Song of Solomon, Beloved, Jazz. And then there are some other novels after that, which are also very good. But that run, there is hardly any other run like that in the history of literature. Certainly in America, you would have to, you could say Faulkner and you could say Nabokov and then you're kind of done. And then there's other places in the world you can go into. And obviously there are many um, authors who I only can read in English. And so there are many authors that I won't be able to do that to. But that is an incredible run. It's an incredible run of beautiful, accessible, searing novels that will make you think about all kinds of different things. And I, uh, I like that. <laughs> and um, I'm sorry that she isn't with us, but I'm so grateful for that pile of books that is unmatched, I think, in American literature. No, I, th I think you put that very well. And, but I'm also aware that you and I can have this long conversation yeah. with Toni Morrison. So maybe we'll just come back to... That's right. Pretend we had it for bottle. 45 more minutes. Yes. We'll yeah. come back to Bottle Grove. That's right. Because th well, this is good too. This is good, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, you know, they are going to give two Nobel Prizes in a few weeks' time, we think. We hope so, both of us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so coming back to Bottle Grove. Oh, I will say, the only other thing is that a fun thing to do when you get home or uh, when you're on Muni uh, on the way back from this is you can look up uh, on um, your favorite YouTube type thing, uh, Doris Lessing learning that she won the Nobel Prize. Um, she's getting out of an automobile. She's clearly done some shopping. And there's a, there's a disturbance on the street, which is the media gathering, because she's won the Nobel Prize, of which she is unaware. And she says, what is it? What's going on? And they say, you've just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And she says, oh, Christ. <laughs> 
and her utter disinterest is inspiring for artists everywhere. Because so, it is not feigned. So when you have a similar reaction, we'll know where you stole that. Right, exactly. Yeah. For me, it will okay. be feigned, right. obviously. Okay. I will have practiced it a million times. But you can tell what she thinks is, now these groceries are never going to get in the fridge. My whole day is ruined. I've won the Nobel Prize in Literature. That's what she's thinking. Daniel Handler, coming back to Bottle Grove. <laughs> uh, one of the threads or one of the things that you pick up in the novel is, or you address in different ways, is the large divides between those who have and don't have in this city. So the income divide. Yes. And we can talk about that uh, a little bit if you want. And sure. I'm sure our audience has lots to say on that. But I do want to just segue and highlight something else that you and your wife, Lisa Brown, have done recently, which is to instigate a writer's residency in collaboration with um, the library. So, I Oh, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not sure those things belong in the same paragraph in some ways, but I do. But I mean, one problem that's happening in San Francisco certainly is that artists are getting priced out. Yeah. Um, and that the that artists making things in San Francisco, I think is one of those things that feels very central to the city. And if it becomes impossible, it's not something you can get back very easily. Um, I did another event for this book with John Vanderslice, who's a musician and a recording engineer. He built a studio called Tiny Telephone in San Francisco, and then he built one in Oakland and now in LA. And they use recording techniques that I can't un begin to understand, but uh, musicians love them. Um, and so they're very cool. And everyone was making pop music at Tiny Telephone for a while. Um, but he just had to close the one in San Francisco because there aren't bands in San Francisco because the logistics of people, young people making pop music together, you know, you need to have a space to rehearse and you need to have various kind of hole in the wall places where you can go play your music. And that infrastructure is not enough to sustain kind of rock and roll in San Francisco, um, which uh, feels like a bad move. Um, and similarly, we know so many um, writers who are priced out and um, you don't need as much infrastructure to write. So Lisa Brown and I are sponsoring a program at the San Francisco Library where you get a few uh, writers get uh, offices there and they participate in the branch of the library and so the community at the library is connected more to the people who are making books, which is um, important to me. But I do think that when we're talking about income inequality in San Francisco, I think that it's, e it's even greater a divide than we're talking about between being able to make it and being able to be a writer. I think, I think what comes to mind for all of us as we wander the city is that disconcerting and kind of sickening blend of the utter poverty that you see and the tall, gleaming, fancy things that are happening. And of course, for those of us uh, blessed enough to be in a room like this, we often see that when we're on our way to something shiny and glamorous, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that often feels just terrible and feels um, like surely that's something we can get right. And I so often feel like the big questions that um, that we ask ourselves are pushed aside. I think that's one thing why children's literature is so important to me is because when you're a child, you ask those questions. So why can't we do this? If he's hungry and there's so much food, why can't we get food to him? Mm -hmm. And that as we get older, we 
we learn more about the world and we have a sophisticated apparatus that helps us explain that so that we may um, eat our glamorous food. And, um, but that's a really good question, I think. And um, it seems often a question that's not um, on everyone's mind. I mean, I think it's on everyone's mind somewhere, but I think it's not often expressed in the discourse because it makes us feel terrible to think about it. Um, but I think it was worth putting in the book because I think that's part of the voyage of San Francisco and that um, we've been such a haven and such a sanctuary to so many families who fled things, including my family. And um, it would be nice to see us feel like we're a sanctuary again in a way that feels more functional, I think, than where we're at now. So let's do that. That feels like a very good place to end. Um, <laughs> yes, go out and do it, everyone. But I, I, it. I, I'll wait here and write another <laughs> book. You fix society. But I, I do. I want to ask one last question before I turn to some of the questions that the audience has sure. been asking, which is, what next? What next? I'm working on a big book. Um, my friend Dana Reinhardt is here. She's a writer that I admire a lot. And she and I do uh, writing together, not collaboratively, but sit uh, in cafes, kind of trying to keep each other honest, both writing. And she's been watching me the past um, few months with, she can tell just from my facial expressions that I'm writing a bonkers book that's uh, driving me a little nuts. Um, and I don't like to talk about it too much, but I will t tell us, story about it, if I may. Mm, please do. Um, so it's inspired by a place. I went to a place and I couldn't believe it. And so then I wrote the place and I said, could I come back to this place and look around at it more and write about it? And they said, yes, as long as you don't tell anyone what the place is, then it can't be a novel about the place. You can make up a new place that resembles it. Not even, we don't want anything that indicates it's the place, which is why I'm referring to it as the place, which is also fun. And so I went back to the place and I was taken all around by a woman who uh, is involved in the place. And <laughs> so we had a nice time. Style. I know. We had a nice time and then I, I took her to lunch uh, and um, I was like, let's have a little wine with lunch so that you may tell me more honestly about the place. And she did. Um, and then um, we walked, then we went back to the place, we did some more work there. And then she was walking me back to my car and. I said, oh, I noticed that there's this uh, thing here. There's like a building here that we hadn't talked about it. And she, was, she knew I was a novelist. She knew she was giving me this. And I was like, she, she got her hand on the door and I was settling myself into the driver's seat. And she said, oh, that's where the witch lives. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I was like... <laughs> come on, man. So I had to stand, you know, I was like, I'm not getting in the car now. I have to learn all about the witch. So the moral of the story is, I don't know what, ask one last question before you're tucked into your car. But, but I just let, oh, that's where the witch lives. Like I would say like, oh, thanks for telling me. Okay, bye. Okay. Well, we look forward to this. Yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks. It'll be a while. It'll take a while. I got... It's a mess now. All right. It's all on index cards. Daniel, speaking of, yes, index cards, uh, these are questions from the audience. Okay. This was a question I was going to, I, I jokingly said I would ask you, 
Oh. But someone is asking this, so even Seriously, better. Seriously, you said it jokingly, and they said it seriously. Well, I said it joking. So we had a conversation earlier, and yeah. I was saying that one of the things that I find interesting when I travel and talk about writing is this is the different cultural contexts that people, or different cultural ways of sort of thinking about literature and asking questions. So I often when I'm in West Africa or Southern, Af- Southern Africa, as I was recently, I was asked to, people ask me, what are the themes in your novels? And what's the purpose of your novel? And what, right. what are you trying to get us to think? And it's just sort of very like, you know, um, those sort of questions. So I was going to ask you the question, which is, because you've been writing about marriage, what's your marriage advice, both to a person and to a city? Someone has asked this. Mary Lisa Brown. That's my advice. It goes really well. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know. What's your marriage advice? You're married to that nice guy. I like him. <laughs> he's, he's super nice. He's super nice. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. We spend a lot of time um, uh, at the end of the day uh, in our beds, in our bed, I should say. We share a bed. <laughs> hope that isn't too frank for the Commonwealth Club. Um, <laughs> laughing a lot. And when we were first dating, Lisa's best friend said to her, you know, you were always laughing and we never knew what you were laughing about. And now we still don't know what you're laughing about, but you have this guy that you're laughing with. So that's good. Um, <laughs> And yeah, we laugh a lot and I, you know, you can't make that happen and it's either happening or it isn't happening. But I would say at least twice a week, we are holding our sides with laughter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Laughter is a, is a good thing. It's, it is. It, yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, we talked about humor before and I think there's hardly any greater catharsis for me and for so many people I know, than that like exhaustion and emptiness that comes after a night of really laughing, or even sometimes a few minutes, right? Where you're with someone and they crack up and you crack up and before you know it, you're just, you can't get out the next sentence that you're trying to say that's only gonna make you laugh harder. And I think that is a deep joy and catharsis. Here's another question related to marriage. Is the institution of marriage changing with the times in the same way that the city has? In the same way? It's probably the opposite, I feel like. I've been thinking about this because I just finished the novel. I put the last little things on the novel. And then my wife and I went to uh, India to a literary festival in India. And there was a woman there who had written a book uh, chronicling three marriages for love and three for that were arranged. And, um, and I asked her, Oh, is this going to be published in America? Because I would love to buy it in America. And she was like, what? No one's going to publish that in America because to say, did you marry for money or for love? is like an offensive question in America. And it's really only been offensive like the, most of the history of marriage to say you married for money was redundant, not insulting. Like it went without saying. That's why we invented marriage. You know, you don't say like, well, Queen Isabella, did you marry for money or was it love? I was just dating and then he turned out to be the king. Um, that's weird. 
I swiped left. I don't know how it works. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I, in many ways, I think it's the opposite. Money mm. seems to be churning into the city and affecting it there. But I think we don't. I mean, I think money is a is a taboo okay. um, subject. Um, regarding the city, a lot of people write about San Francisco. What do other writers miss about the city that locals know? What do writers miss about the city? I mean, I think San Francisco has a kind of diversity that um, feels even deeper than it feels in so many other cities I've been to. And so I think that um, San Francisco has so many stories and so many things going on. And that what I really love, you know, you can't, you can't have, there's not going to be one book about San Francisco that's going to be the quintessential one because they're all intersecting in such a way. And I just love that. I love being from San Francisco and meeting someone else who's from San Francisco and they've had an entirely different life from me. Hardly any overlap at all. And we're a small city, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I, and so much of growing up here, I didn't know it was unique. Um, I went to Lowell High School. Um, so I had, you know, lab partners who w- would meet me. I would, we would go to work together on our AP bio lab and they would be near an illegal Mahjong place in Chinatown. And I just thought, well, that's obviously San Francisco. And that is not obviously San Francisco for many people who live here. But um, so I think that's what it is. But you've written also, I will say that Sarah's, one of Sarah's novels, two of them are for sale. One of them is about San Francisco, and it is a fantastic San Francisco novel. I shall pay you handsomely at the end. They will pay you handsomely by purchasing it en masse. Thank you. Your work has been adopted on screen, but who would play you? Your work has been adapted. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. Who would play you in a movie? Oh, I don't know. Who would you you like? Anything. She'd be great. Um, oh, I don't know. For when we were making the Lemony Snicket movie, there was talk that it was going to be my silhouette and Jude Law's voice. And um, I came and told that to my wife, and she was like, "Yeah, that's what I wanted." <laughs> Your body and Jude Law's personality—that was my dream. And then you laughed. Yeah, and, and, laughed. and we laughed and laughed. And then um, when we, when he was recording his um, narration, I had written some of it, and then I just added to the narration um, a message of love for my wife Lisa Brown, which she then read. And then she still has on her iPod every so often. So it'll come up. Yeah. Knowing that this is banned books week, Ugh. have any of your books been banned? Um, yes, not in a very large uh, scale, but definitely. Um, the Snicket books uh, have been banned kind of here and there. Um, they find some peg to hang it on, but, uh, but it just makes them nervous. I mean, I think that's often at the, at the core of a banned book is that they have some, they've found something that makes them nervous. Um, and then the novel that came out before, Bottle Grove, all the dirty parts is very sexually explicit and um, 
is in some ways for teenagers. And so you'll never guess what. Some people thought that teenagers should spend more time reading about people murdering each other in post-apocalyptic landscapes. <laughs> Just perfectly safe. <laughs> rather than having sex, which is dangerous and no one should ever do. You know, this is making me think about something. We, we had this, a discussion about banned books a few, maybe a year or so ago, and you told me something interesting about a book. Uh, give me a hint. Sorry, I know. I can't give you a hint. So no. let me just let me think about that while we... Yeah. Uh, I remember when I was writing the sex book, I was at your house, and um, your son stopped into the dining room as I was talking about writing about sex, and his mortification was beautiful to see. <laughs> he didn't know what to do. He just froze. There were grown-ups talking about sex in a dining room. How do I escape? He's still there. He hasn't moved. He just froze permanently. <laughs> this had to do with Cosby. Was that, uh, I'm Bill Co- uh, Bill, uh, yeah, Bill Cosby's wrote some children's books that have been, as you might imagine, removed okay. from shelves for, largely. All right. Let's ignore. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> will will writers be? I'm not in defense of Bill Cosby. I no, feel no, no, only no, that I no, should no, say that something. out loud so that no one says later that I was yeah. speaking out in his defense. Humor perils of it. Yeah. Mm. Will writers be replaced by technology one day? Why or why not? Will writers be replaced by technology? I have to think about it. Um, I mean, in the case that we're all going to be loaded into some enormous machine that's going to break down all the time, maybe, yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, um, I, your husband included, there's people who have, who have done work in uh, artificial intelligence such that sometimes you can't tell the um, line that John Ashbery wrote from the line that an algorithm wrote. Um, but I don't think in general there's any danger of that happening anytime soon any more than it will happen along every other front i guess but i mean we're already seeing this replacement in sort of various news reports sports reports it's automated already so yes, i think you're that already true. seeing that um yeah i was doing a bit of research this week for the uh book uh, the new book and um i did that thing where you look something up and then every article on that thing is using exactly the same phrasing, which somehow makes you think it must be true because you've now read it 12 times, which I think is one of the big hypnotisms of the internet in the same way that you say, everyone seems to be talking about this, right? Or this seems to be true. And I couldn't find the source of what I was looking for. I could only find the same claim, which was about something that happened a very long time ago, hundreds of years ago, but I just saw it have the exact same sentence cut and pasted over and over again. And that way, I think I thought to myself, this is why you need to find a medievalist at a university and call them. <laughs> They're probably lonely anyway. <laughs> They're just sitting in their office. You can come in from two to four. And they're just there hoping someone will come by. Daniel. Yes. How do you, this says, how do you both? So asking me, I guess, but let's take it to you how do you deal with writer's block which i've heard you say doesn't exist well i write anyway i guess that's what i do and then it's terrible but most writing is terrible is how i cheer myself up 
Um, yeah, I just keep doing it. I don't know. If you, I, I think if you have writer's block and you write 10 terrible pages, then you have one maybe okay sentence. So I try to do that. What do you do? Said both. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do remember you saying at some point in some interview that people don't have writer's block. It's people have writer's distractions, which I think is actually yeah. quite a profound thing to say. It's, and it made me feel guilty for all the times I'd said I'd, I'd had writer's block when actually I was more distracted than anything else. Um, but yeah, you just... Well, now if guilt is a motivating force, perhaps you've been raised Jewish after all. This is very exciting. <laughs> you just have to sit and write. Yeah. It's but very I, boring. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to say, I like it, but when I was, I, um, so I studied uh, with a, a writer in college who we have lost recently, Kit Reed, who was a really marvelous writer and a marvelous mentor to me. And when m the end of my college uh, career was, when I was about to graduate from college, I said, I went to her and I said, I would like you to tell me if I'm good enough to be a writer. And she said, you have to keep writing and figure out if you like it. And I was so mad at her. I thought, obviously, there's a secret list of people who get to be writers who don't. And just look at the list and tell me if I'm on it. And if I'm not, I'll go on with my life. How hard can this be, Kit Reed? Um, and she told me that. But I, but I mean, what she meant was, are you going to, do you really enjoy making up things all day long? And the answer turns out to be yes, lucky me. <laughs> How do fatal flaws define your work as a writer, both as Daniel Handler and Lemony Snicket? Fatal flaws. That's, what a delicious question. <laughs> How do fatal flaws define my work? Mm. Um, and how many fatal flaws do you have? Well, too many. Mm. I mean, none of them have been fatal yet, but, <laughs> you know, how long will that last? Um, I, I mean, recently I was talking with a poet uh, because we were talking about our favorite words and her real word, her favorite word was real because when you put it in front of something, it sounds like the opposite, right? Hey, would you like a piece of real cheese? And you think, whatever that is, <laughs> it's not real cheese. Um, and I like the word wrong for its narrative capabilities. He opened the wrong door. It's automatically a story. And um, I, I think... So I, I think I like playing with when somebody does something wrong. This is a lot of people make bad choices mm -hmm. in Bottle Grove. And um, I, I like that. It's fun to do. Okay. Yeah, that's a fatal flaw, I guess. Doing wrong things. We'll go with that. So I don't have time to read all of the questions, but maybe we'll just end with this last one. Where can we go in San Francisco to still feel the culture and magic of the city? Oh, there's so many places. I mean, one of the things that I've liked about wandering around town talking about this book is that some, what is important to me about the city is expressed in this novel, which to me, the heart of um, San Francisco is the kind of freaky and individual action and small patches of wildness that feels to me like central of San Francisco. And I mean, I would say, for instance, the Commonwealth Club is an example of something that is a strange individual idea, right? That is not um, 
tied to the kind of juggernaut of capitalism, which is surrounding us all the time. It's something else that you want to come and listen to something and think about something and ask a question and leave and have that echo in your head. And that is a, that is an individual thing. And there's so many wonderful ones in San Francisco, but, um, this morning I was, uh, swimming at the dolphin club, which is an individual, uh, and strange place. And if you don't have to swim in the cold water, if you don't want to, but you can go to the dolphin club and they will let you in and you will see some old wooden boats that they make and put out on the water and um, some old photographs from the 19th century when the Dolphin Club started. And um, what is striking about the old photographs is that the water looks the same. The shape of the water and the shape of the islands and the shape of what is next to the water looks exactly the same. And it's startling. It makes you think the photograph is not real because the people look different, mm -hmm. but the water is the same. Okay. Uh, we're going to end with this. Uh, it is an in-forum tradition to ask all the speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? Daniel, let's hear it. I can't believe I didn't prepare for this. Yeah. I know this is the thing. Uh, you should. As people but, saw yes, in the video, I've yes. been in the questioner's chair yeah. so many times. I should have, how could I not have Fatal this? flaw. Ugh. Daniel. That is my fatal flaw. Mm. Yeah, that is it. Um... Well, I will say this. Um, I've stopped reading the newspaper first thing in the morning. I think that often the way the news is being brought to us is part of um, a plot to flatter us that we are keeping informed when we, when we aren't always. You know, because so much of what we're given as news is um, a reaction to a hot take about an opinion about something that happened that actually might not matter to you, you know? And so, I, and I had this revelation once when I was reading something and I could feel my blood pressure rising. And I said, you are reading what someone thinks about what somebody said who is not going to be the candidate for whom you will not vote. I was reading about a, someone who was running against who the guy turned out to be president. I, so another Republican who was not going to end up being the Republican nominee. I knew he wasn't. And, and he says something horrible, as they do. And I thought, why am I reading about what this person thinks so I can feel, oh, yes, I'm not alone in thinking about this outrageous thing that was said by someone who is not going to be the Republican who I'm not going to vote for. So I stopped reading the paper in the morning. I guess this is longer than 60 so seconds you, already. Yes, yes, speak really quickly. I stopped reading so, the paper yeah. in the morning because of the way that the news is shaped when I, I come to the paper later in the day and instead in the morning with my coffee, I read poetry. Mm. Try that for a couple of days, put the newspaper down and read poetry in the morning. Thank you to Daniel for joining us. Thank you to Sarah for Inform. balancing so many balls in the air. <laughs> Copies of Daniel's book are available for purchase in the lobby and he'll be pleased to sign them for you in just a few moments. I'm Sarah Ladipo-Manika. Thank you and have a good night.